0: Hi everybody, my name is Red, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi. Watching you guys in that first thirty or sixty or ninety days, there's no way in the world that I'd ever try to stand up here at a podium and tell anybody in this room whether they're alcoholic or not. I don't believe I'm qualified to do that. However. If you happen to start identifying with some of these innermost feelings that I'm going to try to talk about, some of these symptoms of this terminal disease that I have, I'd sure as hell pay attention. What we're dealing with here is a terminal disease. Just roll that over your tongue a couple of times. That's got kind of a fine line to it means that if you continue to use and abuse the mind-altering drug alcohol, and don't let anybody ever kid you that alcohol is not a drug, alcohol falls right in the drug category with the ethers and the anesthetics. It's one of the oldest known drugs to man. And it's probably been used and abused by a man longer than any other drug. And it's probably killed more men and women than any other drug. I used it and abused it over a period of time regardless of how long it took, until I actually broke my tolerance to it. If you're wondering why alcohol has been giving you a lot of trouble physically, it's because you become allergic to the drug alcohol. When old Red drinks alcohol, I break out in spots. Spots like Octopoco, Las Vegas... (laughs) In other words, once I pick up that first drink of that mind-altering drug, I can no longer predict my behavior. And if you've been having trouble along those lines, I can guarantee you that tonight you're in the right place. This physical allergy that I developed over a period of time to this drug is not necessarily what makes it the killer that it is today. There's a mental side of this disease, and it's the real serious one. It's called the obsession of the mind. It's triggered, incidentally, by the first drink of that mind-altering drug that you pick up that tells you that this time it's going to be different. This time I'll be able to control. This is the time that booze is going to work for me like it always used to. See, if you be alcoholic like O'Red and you pick up that first drink, you trigger your obsession to drink. In the alcoholic, it'll immediately set up a compulsion to drink, and you're going to end up, maybe not today, maybe not even this week, but once you trigger that obsession, once you set up that compulsion, you're going to end up in another devastating bout with this mind altering drug in which you're just one step closer to the insanity and death that Tom was reading about a minute ago when he read from that portion of Chapter 5 from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. So if you're new... The whole idea, the whole concept of the fellowship called Alcoholics Anonymous is to teach us on a daily basis how to stay away from that first drink. You know, the first hundred guys and a gal that were on this fellowship, that were able to do this a day at a time for a year, got together and they wrote down what they had done. They called it the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous i got to believe that that first hundred guys and a gal must have been spiritually led. Over a period of the last 25 years that Red's been sober a day at a time, I have never found myself in a situation that I couldn't find the solution to in that big book of Alcoholics Anonymous before it was necessary for me to go out there and take up that first drink. And almost all the answers come in those 12 suggested steps The Tom read you a minute ago. Those are the suggested steps to recovery used by that first hundred guys and a gal that were able to stay sober a day at a time for a year. If you were listening when he read them a minute ago, they are suggested steps to recovery. But I can guarantee you that there's not a guy or a gal in a room like this tonight with any length of sobriety at all that ever had them just suggested to them. You're going to have to take them you're going to have to do the best you can with them on a daily basis for the rest of your life if you want to become a survivor. Take a look around you in a room like this tonight, and what you see are the survivors of a terminal disease, a disease from which there is no cure, a progressive disease that's going to continue to get worse for the rest of your life, whether you drink or not. You wonder why Red standing up here tonight, still yapping about the same old thing after 25 years of sobriety? It's because it's a hell of a lot more important for me to stay sober today than when I was in that first 30 or 60 or 90 days. You see, my disease has continued to progress. I had a very dear buddy with 22 years try it not too long ago. That lady started to drink at 10 in the morning, and by 4 that afternoon she was dead. This is the progression of the allergy of alcoholism. I said a minute ago, regardless of how long it took, (coughs) excuse me, I say that around podiums anymore because as I look at these audiences, they keep getting younger on me all the time. Maybe it's because I'm getting so damn old. I don't know. But a lot of times I think maybe youth think they got here too soon. If you're thinking like that, my God, forget it. The average age of death today of the guy or the gal with a disease called alcoholism is down to 37 Take a look around you. You see a lot of us old jokers still staggering around, so you know how many kids have got to be dying to bring it down to anything like that. It's not extraordinary at all anymore for somebody to go through the gates of insanity and death before their 16th birthday. A couple of some of that crap that's out there on the street tonight, pushing this progression along, it's not hard to pack 20 years of hard drinking into four or five. So if you are in a room like this tonight, for God's sake, try to pay attention to some of these symptoms I'm going to be talking about, some of these innermost feelings, and maybe, just maybe, you might save yourself a lot of hell right here on earth. I'll get off of this bleeding decent cake and qualify myself as an alcoholic. I didn't do any drinking at an early age. I had an obsession. I, I wanted to fly. I wanted to fly the biggest and the fastest airplanes that were ever built. I had a real drawback. I was born back in what they called the Depression years. I know a lot of you aren't old enough to remember them. I have a feeling you might have had a little touch up in the last 10 or 12, but, you know, things were tough. I knew my chances to get to do something like this were pretty slim. I, I started to investigate, and it seemed to be my only chance It had to be the military. Except back in those days, we didn't have an Air Force, for se. It was part of what was called the old Army Air Corps. If I didn't even get into it, I was going to have to have two years of college and a senatorial appointment to the academy. I knew the money wasn't going to be there for that college due to the times. I was no great student, but I was a big kid. I figured I could do it athletically. I stayed clean all the way through high school. I won my football scholarship to Colorado State University. I wangled my two years of college that way, got my senatorial appointment, and they sent me to what was then called Randolph Field, which was the old Army Air Corps Academy. They kept me awful busy through that period of my life, and booze was no problem. I just didn't use it. I graduated as a second lieutenant back in the old Army Air Corps just prior to us getting into World War II. I see a few guys sitting out there tonight can probably remember how unprepared we were for that hassle. You know, our dads were supposed to fought one day in and and Congress has never seen too fit to appropriate it's the kind of a show we've got today. We got tossed into that North African campaign over there against a bunch of guys that had been sitting there practicing for a couple of years, and they got pretty damn good at what they were doing. We were strictly under trained and for sure under airplane. I found myself in a situation on that first tour in which a lot of times we were putting up 25 against 200 and we were getting the hell kicked out of it. I came back off of one of those raids very early in that first tour and that particular day we only got eight back out of the 25. Now I think a lot of you can identify with adrenaline, mother nature's drug, usually triggered by fear. Fear of death, fear of the unknown, fear of failure. I'd been in an adrenaline-type situation for about six hours, and it had really been pumping. I was back on the ground. I was standing in a room about like this, tables on each side, waiting to go in to talk to the interrogators about what had happened. And old Ed was shaking. I was shaking in every bone in my body. Now, I wasn't too worried about adrenaline shakes. I'd had them before. You stand there and wait for that football to come down with that 250-pound lineman about to nail you, and you'll quiver. I
1: don't give a damn who you are. <laughs>
0: but you'd get over it. You know what? I knew I'd get over it. But this flight surgeon stand standing there looking at me one that Sure. He says, what's the matter, Red? And I said, nothing. I'll be all right. He looked at me for a few minutes, and he says, young man, I got just what you need. I had never paid too much attention to that medicinal table that they had set up there in operation. But on it, they had about a half a dozen open-fifths of what they called medicinal whiskey. Think about that for a few minutes. Whiskey is a medicine. Reached over and picked up a water glass, and he poured me about two fingers, and he said, Here, drink this. I said, I really don't want it. He says, Young man, I prescribe it. Man, I hung on to that one for years. (laughs) I picked it up, turned it up, drank it, walked on into interrogation, and sat down. If you've got an alcoholic personality like I have, I think you know what happened. Man, that stuff sat there and it flowed out to those fingertips and out there to those toes. And all of a sudden, I'm sitting there real comfortable. I looked down and they were roped. You know, 10 minutes before, I hadn't been able to light a cigarette or pick up a cup of coffee. 10 minutes down the line with a half a glass of booze in me, I'm looking at them, they're frozen, just like they are tonight. Old Red never shook at anything again for the next 20 years. I thought I'd found the luster of life. I really believed it, and booze worked out well for me for a long, long time. Even after it started doing to me, it would still do for me. I soon found to get the full benefit out of it. I had to keep recreating the kind of a situation I'd had that first day. Probably combat's the best adrenaline builder i ever found before or since. I became a combat freak. I stayed three years and two tours of duty, and I got good at what I was doing. I learned to live on that nice edge, that fast lane. I think a lot of you can identify with it. You know, booze was always there at the end of the day to handle anything that I couldn't. And I'd come in at night, see guys sitting on the edge of their beds worried about going the next day. You know, and I'd look at them and think, God, I wish they could find alcohol. You know, it just never dawned on me that it worked so much better for me than it did for them. I went right on through World War II. Hell, I was back here in the States. I probably should have been able to lay that medication down and go on about my business. But in retrospect, I think I started running into one of the first symptoms of this disease. Some of you might identify with it. It's called justification. You know, rather than laying it down, i went looking for a job that has some adrenaline in it. All the real good airplanes, the jet-type airplanes that we got today, were just coming off the drawing board. They were looking for guys that had a lot of combat experience, to evaluate them. I put my application in and got accepted as a test pilot to the Proving Ground Command. Hell, the excitement was back. I was flying the kind of airplanes now that I'd laid on those Colorado hillsides and dreamt about when I was a kid. I was flying with the best, and I knew it. Booze was still working for me. I think it started working a little bit too well. Proving Ground Command is Eglin Field in Florida. In fact, it still is. they got a big officer's club built right out there in the Gulf. I'd catch myself an awful lot of nights hanging out at that club until about 2 o'clock in the morning. You know, just kind of tranquilizing the day. And I'd know I had a 630 test on. Now, not always. Not always for sure. But every once in a while, I'd wake up in that BOQ around 11 o'clock in the morning with that cold, sweat start would come to it. I'd look at my watch and say, did I or didn't I? You know, you pick up the phone, call the sergeant, you say, I get everything written up they wanted this morning. Yes, sir, right down the line. You walk back down to the line, you step up on the wing of that bird, and the knee pad is yours. Checkoffs are yours. Signature's yours. Geometer says you've been up to speed of sound, and the only thing you can't recall is going. <laughs> Now don't kid me that it hasn't happened to you. You step out there on that porch in the morning, that car sitting in the driveway, you say, How did it get home last night? <laughs> or how did I get home last night? It's called blackouts. The overuse and abuse of the mind altering drug alcohol to the point that it blacks out the conscious mind. If you've got any coordination at all, you're gonna get by with a hell of a lot of it. I've seen guys go for a week in a blackout and you'd never see them staggering yet they had no conception of where they were or what they were doing. Should you scare the living hell out of an alcoholic, and I don't believe I've ever found one that it bothered too much. We write her off the idea that, God, I must have had a good time last night. You know, we're willing to take somebody else's word for it. In the occupation that I was in, I knew it wasn't what I was looking for. I started my first feeble attempts, I guess, about this time at control. I'd always been a binge drinker at the end of the day. I figured if I was going to exercise control at all, I had to string it out over a longer period of time. I think this is how an awful lot of us become daily drinkers. I think what I became over a long period of my life is what I like to refer to as a functioning drunk. I grew up binge-type drinking, but I sure as hell didn't give up drinking. I just used it more sparingly. And it worked, hell. Most of the real good airplanes I would really wanted to test were off the drawing board. Anyway, I was looking for something that maybe had a little more kick to it, as usually Air Force come up with it. We found that we would let way too many guys out right after World War II. They started a big recruiting campaign to get the key personnel to come back. One of the promotional aspects they came up with was the organization of what's still known today as the Air Force aerobatic team. Probably most of you have seen that team at one show or another around the country. You don't get sentenced to that team. You volunteer for it. I had all the qualifications. I put my application in and got accepted. I was back flying with the best again and I knew it. It's not all fun and games. You practice at that stuff four and a half days a week and you fly 32 air shows around the country a year. They're up to 48 now. But I was back, like I say, flying with the best. Everything was going great. Uh, booze was still working for me. I think I started running into another symptom though about this time. Maybe some of you might identify with it. It's called hangover. God, I have never found, and this is before or since, a worse place to shake a hangover than an aerobatic formation. You just think about it for a few minutes. You know, you walk out there in the morning, that canopy starts down over you, and you're trapped. You know, there's no way in the world you're going to stop at a corner a tavern. That's for damn sure. You hook that oxygen mask across your face, and you can no longer become ill. You pull into that 18-inch interval formation, and those guys just insist that you don't shake. You do a lot, maybe you might identify with this, and it's called the deep sweat. I used to sit there and wonder, how come? How come something that's worked for me so well for so long is kicking me around like this? I used to try to analyze it. You know, I got to thinking, hell, maybe it's the life you leave, Red. Maybe at the end of your two years, they only let you fly with the team for two years. At the end of my two years, I'll resign, get out, get in civilian life, get a business going, get a family started, do the things I've seen my buddies do. I always believed right I'm going to have both feet to the gates of insanity and death, that given the right set of circumstances, I could control my drink. I make this philosophy of self-sufficiency that we all grow up with in kids, where every guy and every gal should be an island to themselves, it's probably what helps about 14 to 16 million of those practicing ALKIs that are out there tonight self-medicate themselves right out of this world without ever finding what we find in rooms like this, that there is a way out. I finished my two years. I resigned. I hit civilian life. Now, all my buddies had been out there about four and a half years ahead of me. They got out right after World War II. They'd, they'd finished their educations. They had positions. They had homes built. Families started. You're anything like I'm as an alcoholic, you know what you're going to do. Double up and catch up. You know, and this is the way I hit civilian life. I went into business, I built a tri-level home, got that family, got married and got the family started, and and the business I went into was immediately successful. In fact, you guys contributed, and I'm still in that kind of business, you guys contributed an awful lot to it in your drinking careers. It's called the auto body business. <laughs> But it was good. I think it would have been all right if I had just worked at it eight hours a day. But I was going to catch all those jokers. I was working 12 and 14 and 16 hours a day. I went to six days a week, and then I put on two shifts. I got that tri-level home down there paid for it a short period of the time. I got a trust fund started for the kids to get them through college, and hell, they're only one and three. You know But this is the way we think and this is the way we drive and I'd come through those doors at night to damn beat I could hardly hold my head up, flop in that easy chair, and there was one thing I could always sell red right on. Man, if there's anything you've earned yourself today, and you know what it was. Hell it was a drink of booze, and I was no better off than I was sweating hangovers at thirty thousand. Strange thing happened to me about this time in my life, oh Harry Truman got his foot in his mouth and sicked us on Korea. I was telling you we hadn't trained any fighter pilots. He found it out in a hurry, and he had to call the war worries. Guy just 21 days, and the day I was recalled, I looked out there, and got two 500-pound neopoms nailed each one. When, again, they're saying second target. They just went that way. I got another 100 missions to do. You know, I'm 33 years old by this time. They don't sound old, but it's getting old for a fighter pilot, especially one with a progressive disease. Now, I had no idea that I had a progressive disease. Hell, I was still passing Class A physicals every six months. How could I have a disease? Somebody just found it Yet, when I started to do that new hundred in Korea, something became quite evident to old Red in a hurry. Those damn missions had got too long between drinks. You know, I told you I'd been a daily drinker now for a hell of a long time. I think these chains of alcoholism lie so lightly on our shoulders that a lot of us have no idea that they're there until we're completely a mesh. So all of a sudden, we wake up one morning to the fact that we are no longer telling booze when we're going to drink it. Booze is beginning to tell us when we're going to drink it. I solved that situation very simply. I went over to the PX and bought myself two 8-ounce flasks, one for each winter flight boot. Hell, it worked great. I'd use the right one on going out and the left one coming home. A long time after Boo started doing to me, it would still do for me. And I think a lot of you can identify with that. I think it was brought out very vividly to me just about how hooked I was really getting. On about my 40th mission, I got shot up again for about the umpteen time of life and the shell come through the bottom of the airplane right through my left leg. And it kicked it clear into my chin. Yeah, I still remember getting my foot back down on that rudder, and I could feel liquid running into that left winter flight boot. I still remember sticking my hand down there and pulling her back and thinking, hot dog, it's blood.
1: <laughs>
0: Only alcoholics identify with that story. I still had an hour to get home. Those are the events. Shot up, know how it'll put you in shock. And I was damn glad to find my medication still intact. This is the way booze was letting me think. I, I finished my hundred. I got back here to the states. I got to thinking, you know, maybe Red, you could find yourself a flying job far enough away from booze. Maybe there's some place you can get in this world where it's not so readily available. I started looking for that assignment. They were just starting to build the radar sites up across the Arctic Circle. I went north. (laughs) If any of you are thinking about that, my God forget it. I spent a year in Thule, Greenland, where the warmest day we had was twenty three below. You know, so cold weather won't do it. It just won't do it. I finally volunteered to come down to Harmon, that big seagrams distillery there in Newfoundland, to pick up the monthly ration of booze for that booze for that base up there at Thule. It's only four hundred and fifty miles in the North Pole. I brought down a twin-engine airplane that afternoon. I loaded her car down with those big 40-ounce Canadian jugs of that CC and VO. I started back up there that night, and I got into one of the damnedest Arctic storms I was ever in, and I lost an engine. It was one of those nights I called Air Sea Rescue, and those bastards wouldn't even come out. You know, and I fought her all night long, and I got into Thule just as Arctic gone and the whole base was down there to meet me. I got to thinking, isn't it great they're that worried about old Red
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: I go back that winter and the first thing they asked me, is, You didn't salvo that load, did you? That <laughs> never even crossed my mind. <laughs> I don't know whether you guys had this problem or not. Guys. As a daily drinker, I was developing a hell of a smell problem. You know, when you drink booze all day like I did, you smell like booze all day. I got to thinking maybe if i get back to Europe where they got that wine on the table and they eat a lot of garlic, that at least I'd blend in better. <laughs> I volunteered for Fleet Line Service, which is the airline that resupplies NATO. I went back over, and you know, my northern run was Brussels, and Amsterdam, Copenhagen, Oslo, and Stockholm. Now, those are progressive disease towns out here. (laughs) I was picking up a lot of rank over the years, and they kept trying to trap me for command. They finally got it done about this time. They jerked me back here to the States, gave me an air defense group, stuck me up here in Hamilton, just outside of San Francisco. Now, I got about 800 men in my command. I'd I'd hear my airplanes roll every morning. seemed like, invariably, I'd... I'd look out there at that outer office of mine, and that adjutant would always have about a half a dozen of my boys sitting out there waiting for me to talk to. I found an awful lot of my mornings used to be used constantly. You know, these kids had been in town getting themselves into all kinds of trouble drinking. I had a system. I had an eyes-on safe alongside of my desk. that used to keep a 40-ounce jug of smearing off red vodka in there with a hooked glass straw. Every time he'd go out to get one of those boys, I'd hit the safe. And usually by noon, I was giving some pretty damn good lectures on the evils of drinking. Also, knew I was going to get a lot of trouble sooner or later. The Air Force had always been awful good to me. I figured I sure as hell owed them a lot more than I was giving them. Again, I decided to resign. This time, it didn't work. My resignation got as far as Air Defense Command at Colorado Springs. And they bounced it. They couldn't figure out why a 15-year-old colonel all of a sudden wanted to throw his command in. And I, I couldn't very well go in and tell him why. If I had any other terminal disease in this world, I'd be in there on that doctor's doorstep every morning laying the symptoms on him. You know, telling him, God, doc, this is where it hurts. Yet you can take that dying alcoholic, drag him into that same doctor's office, reading that same set of questions, when it comes to that one where it says, do you drink excessively? Oh, a couple of beers now and then. Self-denial, the greatest symptom of all the symptoms I've been trying to talk about. Our complete lack of our innermost cells to get honest enough to, to admit to our innermost cells that booze has just taken us to pieces. They did let me out. Psychiatry was the first help, probably, that was ever offered to me as an alcoholic. That's what they treated me for. They thought I was suffering from delayed combat fatigue. You know... Don't get me wrong. Psychiatry, I think, can probably help anybody in this room. I just don't think it can help the practicing alcoholic. i got to tell you my psych story. It's about a guy about like I am. It fits in with my story down the line. This, this guy had an obsession. He had an obsession. He had a purple screw for a belly button. Now, I knew it was an obsession, but every time he looked down, there's that bright purple screw, right, where his belly button should be. He finally goes to this shrink. He says, do you think you could help me? He says, I haven't had a good night's sleep in months worrying about this. The psychiatrist says, "Yeah, he says I think I can help you. He says I just got a new potion in. He says I want you to take it home, get in your best pajamas, open your bedroom window. He says drink this stuff now and you'll drift right off to sleep. It'll float a little pink cloud. It'll have a little yellow-handled screwdriver on it. He says unscrew that thing, lay it up, let it float out, and you get your night's sleep." He looked at it and says, "Doc, I'm going to try this." He went home and he went through the routine and it worked. In floated the little cloud. He unscrewed it, out it floated. Got the night's sleep he'd been looking for for months. Woke up the next morning completely refreshed. Covers were up. Finally got his nerve up and took a look. And sure enough, a normal belly button. He was just elated. He jumped out of bed and his ass fell
1: off.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the reason I tell you this story... It's exactly the way that psychiatry worked for already. They would fix me up. They'd say, you're ready, Tiger. I'd jump out there and off it and fall again. They did let me out. Family long since got tired of my snags and been on their way. My family had moved out here my folks had moved out here to the West Coast. And they'd been real successful. We had a big home over there in Palo Verde Hills, over there on top of Palo Verde Hill. Hills. I figured i will get up there in that big den with that boob tube and that beautiful view of Los Angeles Harbor. I'm going to kick back, and I'm going to get a handle on this drink. And all the pressures are off now. I lasted about two weeks up there, and I was going out of my gourd. It was one of those big wooden globes, one of those Columbus-type globes sitting in that den. I kept looking at that thing and thinking, you know, maybe, Red, you've never taken a true geographic. I'd always been around guys that could cover for me, guys I'd flown combat with or going to school with. I figured if I'd get someplace in this world far enough away from anybody that knew me, I'd have to do it on my own. I ran my finger up over the meridian to see what was on the other side of the world from Palo Verde. If you want to try it, it's Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. (laughs) One month later, I was flying captain on Ethiopian Airlines. I'm halfway around the world again. Nobody knows, Red. All he knows is he's got lots of flying time, and he's qualified. I gave it my best shot. I don't know whether any of you guys tried white-knuckle sobriety or not, but I stayed sober a year on guts. If you're thinking about it, my God, forget it. It was the most miserable year I ever spent in my life, before or since. It wasn't a waking moment in that year that I didn't want to drink. I'd wake up in the middle of the night and I'd have to go down to the kitchen and pour myself one, set it on a table and sweat it. Not drink it. Prove yourself you got guts enough to leave it alone. Go to a movie and i had have to get up in the middle of it and go to the bar and have the bartender pour me one. Not drink it. Sit there and sweat it. That's the way I went through the year. At the end of it, I figured, well, there's one thing you prove, Tiger. At least you're not an
1: alcoholic.
0: <laughs> I went out to celebrate. This <laughs> is my last fight. I don't remember fighting after that. You come up that hill, so gradually you hit that level off period. You finally get over on the backside of that alcoholic curve. And I'll guarantee you, once you hit the backside of that curve, you're going to start donating to the pot to reserve your right to use this drug. Usually jobs, securities, homes, things that we've worked hard for most of our lives. All of a sudden, you're going to find yourself tossing them into the pot to reserve your right to use this drug. Families, loved ones, people that have stuck by us through hell and high water. All of a sudden, we're tossing him into the pot to reserve our right to use this drug. If you want to hang out there as long as Red did, you're going to have to get things like integrity, self respect, anything that means anything to you. You've got to donate on the backside of that curve. I used to look down and say, If I ever got like that Joker, I'd quit. You know, and pretty soon I'd be just like him, and I'd say, I mean that one down there. After <laughs> all. I- I used to look down and say, if I ever got like that joker, I'd quit. You know, and pretty soon I'd be just like him, and I'd say, I mean that one down there. (laughs) That's the way I went. It wasn't too many years before they quit renewing my airline contracts. In Africa about this time, most of those colonial countries were going independent. There was a hell of a demand for the kind of flying I'd been doing most of my life. All of a sudden, I find red shooting at people for money. You know, this has a funny effect on your insides. I'd always had at least principles fight for through a couple of worse. Now I'm just sitting out there shooting at guys to support a habit that I don't seem to be able to do too much about. There's a lot of other pressures that can be put on practicing alcoholics, as all of you know. You know, I told you I'd been of in air defense group that would help build a radar site. I'd had a top-secret clearance most of my life. Now I'm flying for a foreign government. You hear things like OSI and CIA. You don't think too much about it, but those bastards are out there, and they can give a practicing out fit. They know who's paying you. They know how much. They know where you're banking it. They're opening your mail. You don't want to get shot down in that part of the world. All those pressures are building, and I'm doing the one thing that's always worked. I'm pumping that flit, and it got worse. In fact, it got so bad that they finally even quit hiring me for it. I ended up, and I'm sure as hell not proud of it, Flying through mountain passes with my landing lights on railroad tracks for navigation. Now I'm a flight through low-level overwater, and my landing fields are deserted beaches, and they're flashlight lit. I have a feeling you know what I'm doing. I'm smuggling because that's where the money is. That's where all the fears are, too. If I get caught doing what I'm doing now, I know they'll put me away for life. And yet alcohol took all those choices away. If you want to hang out there as long as Red did, that's exactly what's going to happen to you if you live that long. I kept right on with that kind of a crappy existence until I finally got so the bad they quit hiring me for it. I was back here in the States, I was 41 years old. I guess probably I was about as unemployable as a guy can get. I, I figured there wasn't too many things I hadn't tried a couple times in this world. If I couldn't whip it, at least I could get with it. I bought myself 10 cases of those 40-ounce jugs of that Smirnoff Red Vodka, and I stuck them in that hillside over there in Palo Verde. And I went on what was supposed to be Old Red's last drunk. And it just damn near it was. People over on the side of that hill had no idea what was the matter with me. This was 26 years ago it was before detox or care centers or hospitals didn't have anything to do with an alcoholic. They knew I was getting awful sick physically. My normal weight's about 220 and I was down to 138 pounds of emaciation. Most of that was liver. I think God stepped in about this time. Those people picked a doctor out of the phone book. See if he'd make a house call. And that doc made that house call. I know today that he didn't do it because of his Hippocratic oath. They happened to pick a doctor that's a member of a fellowship called Alcoholics Anonymous. He listened to those symptoms over the phone. He made the call. Told those people what I was up against. Said he'd seen some amazing recovery on a program that he himself was on. Said he was going to do what he could for me physically, and if I asked for help, to call you. I don't remember ever getting that well. He thought I was going to die and they thought I was going to die. So I guess they just called you because my first recollection of these sober guys was guy sitting on the edge of that bed. And they literally nursed old red back to hell. They started hauling me into rooms like this. And God, I was a tongue-chewing, wet-brained, babbling idiot. I'll guarantee you for about that first 30 days. But thank God you read that portion of Chapter 5 like Tom did tonight, because I think that's what saved old Red's life. I go to a lot of meetings around the world where they don't do that. But I wasn't capable of hearing too much. I could hear listen, list everything I had to do to get through one flight was written down. I'd never gone near a bird in my life, drunk or sober, that I hadn't used that checklist from the time I walked up until the time I walked away. And it'd get me through just one flight. Sitting there that night, all of a sudden, it dawned on me what 24 hours really is. 24 hours, just one flight in life. And those 12 suggested steps of the checklist of how to get through it without picking up a drink of booze. I've been using that 12-step checklist on a daily basis now for the last 25 years. I've never found it necessary to go back out there and pick up another drink of booze or tranquilizing, sedating, elevating pills. Haven't had to smoke any funny grass. I, I guess I've probably been as close to chemically free as a guy can stay in this modern world. And I owe it all to you guys. You see, on my own, I'd given it my best shot, and I'd never scratched the surface. Everything that I've been talking about tonight, I've learned in rooms like this. You got your hand up tonight, and you said, my name is Red, and I'm an alcoholic. You pretty well got that number one step nailed. That's what we're talking about. We admit that we are powerless over alcohol, that our lives are unmanageable, and that's just about what we're able to do when we stand up in front of a bunch of our peers and say, my name is Red, and I'm an alcoholic. If you're anything like I was, though, when you hit that step number two, that thing will just shake the living hell out of you. You know, there's a real inference in that step. I'm going to have to ask the power greater than red to restore me to sanity. You know, i got to admit I'm nuts before I can take that step. i got to admit I had to be. Where else would you find a guy completely allergic to a drug that if he continued to use it was going to kill him that went out there and pumped it down a couple of fifths a day? You know, there's got to be all kind of insanity in us before we ever come through those doors. Don't let it shake you too much. I'm going to tell you my insanity story about a guy about like I am. I do a lot of yapping around this basin for these podiums. And by the time I get my shop closed in Long Beach and get out to Buena Park and change clothes and then come down here, double up the valley or place I'm going all the time, I'm always driving like a son of a gun to get there in time. This guy was doing the same thing. He only had about 10 minutes to make this meeting. He was on the freeway. His off-ramp was coming up. He thought he had it nailed. He hit the off-ramp, got a couple of blocks down the street, blew a tire. He jumped out in his flat, and he thought, well, maybe I can still make it. He ran around, jerked his truck open, got his spare out, jacked his car up, whipped his lug nuts off, put them in a hubcap behind him. He just set his spare up. Car come whizzing along behind him, cut the edge of the hubcap, flipped all his lug nuts right out in the weeds. <laughs> he's planning. He's, he's out there beating his weeds to death and wringing his hands it's dark and he can't find them you know and all of a sudden he heard a voice he hadn't paid any attention to where it pulled to a stop and he looked up he was parked right in front of an institution for the alcoholically insane one of the inmates had been set up there on a the fence watching all this and he says hey mister and the guy says I haven't got time to talk to you right now he says I'm in a hell of a hurry the guy sitting up on a fence says, you know, I've been watching you. He says, I figured you must be. He says, hell, if I was in that big a hurry, he said, I'd take the other three hubcaps off, take a lug nut off of each wheel, put that thing on there and get going.
1: <laughs>
0: the guy stood there and he shook his head and he says, my God, that's the answer. He says, how did you come up with that? I thought you were insane. And the guy says, well, I am, but that's no sign I'm stupid. <laughs> The point I'm trying to make is this. All of us, when we come through those doors back there, are a wee bit being out of shape. We've been out there kicking ourselves around for a hell of a long time. The mere fact that we come looking for help sure as hell proves that we're not stupid. This is where the answers are. Rooms like this. Guys and gals sharing their experience, strength, and hope with each other that we can solve this common problem. I hit that step number three. And I think all of you know what happened. I run into that word God. I wasn't running for my sponsor. I said, Mac, is that the God that they're talking about?
1: <laughs>
0: you know what kind of an answer I got. I said, I haven't got a chance. I got 250,000 years in purgatory before I can even start this program. He said, you didn't read the small print, Tiger. And I said, what's that? He said, the God of your understanding." I had no idea. I was going to have to turn my world and my life over to a power greater than red. And all of a sudden it dawned on me that there was one right there in front of me. You guys. Group power. I could look in your eyes and I could tell you were staying sober. The one thing that I'd given it my best shot and was never able to do. I started using the group as my higher power. I could believe in group power. I'd been tucked up in groups all my life. As long as I was in the group, I had all the firepower in the world. It was only when I was out there as a straggler I was going to get my ass shot down. I started hanging with the winners, the guys that had some time on this program. I started listening to them, picking their brains. And they taught me. They taught me real good about this power that the Dale Red calls God. My sobriety, on a daily basis, is a gift from you guys and God. What I do with my sobriety is my gift back to him. You see, to let me become part of that pipeline of information started by that first hundred guys in the gap, the only way I can keep it is to keep giving it away. I got to be standing at that door back there when the new guy comes through. I got to have my hand out and share my experience, strength, and hope with him, like they did with me when I came here. This is a fellowship called Alcoholics Anonymous. I got down to the end of that checklist, and it said having had a spiritual awakening, and nothing had happened. And all of a sudden, it dawned on me that I had no idea what spiritual was. I got to go to a convention about my first 60 days. I heard an old boy from the podium, and he sounded spiritual. In fact, he passed away down here in Laguna a few years back. Every time I ever heard him, he always sounded spiritual. I took him aside after that meeting. I said, come on, tell me about spiritual. And he says, I'm glad you asked for it. He said, I had a hell of a time without him. He said, I went over to the public library and got the dictionary down. So said, opened up to that word, and he says, it didn't do too much for me. He says, I got all the dictionaries in the building down. He says, I opened them all up to the same word, copied all the definitions, and took a consensus. And he says, you know what spiritual is? And I said, that's what I'm looking for, something this alky brain can handle. He says, read spiritual is that which is not material. I started reading that big book of Alcoholics Anonymous real conscientiously to find out what that first hundred guys and the gal had in mind when they put that in there. The more I read it, the more I became convinced that what they were talking about were my attitudes and my emotions. You see, these are the things that had always driven me back out there to pick up that first drink. Alcohol was merely a symptom of what was wrong with me. My attitudes prior to finding you guys, when I'd take a look at a day, was, oh God, another day. And they'd been that way a long, long time. What you guys have taught me is to step out there and take a look at it and say, thank God another day. I've been granted one I shouldn't have had. The average age of death when I came on this program was 41, and I told you a minute ago how old a red was. I just barely snuck in. It means that every day that I've been granted over the last 25 years, a day at a time is a gift from you guys and God. And you can't get too ungrateful to it for a situation like that. I get it right up here, get right up to cloud nine when I get at a podium like this, I, I gotta tell you my attitude story. This guy came into a barber shop not too long ago. He was right up on Cloud Nine. The barber got him in the chair and he says, What are you so happy about? Barber the guy says, I've got a seven forty seven reservation going to Rome. He says, I'm going over there and eat some of that good Italian food. He says, I even got an audience with the Pope. The barber looked at him and he says, What's the matter with you, man? He says, That seven forty seven is the roughest airplane in the sky. He says, You'll be airsick all the way over there. He says, you start eating that Italian food, and Montezuma's revenge is going to seem mild. He said, you know the Pope isn't going to have time for a commoner like you. Well, the guy had gone in there right on cloud nine. He came out after the haircut right down in the pits, you know, right, where those norms usually drop me. And he didn't see him for 30 days. And all of a sudden, the guy come bouncing back in, and he's really out of sight this time. He got him back in the chair, and he said, what now? He says, I made that trip. He said, that 747 is the smoothest airplane in the sky. He said, I a ripple going over he said, I gained ten pounds eating that Italian food. He says, best I ever had. He said, I even got in an audience with the Pope. He said, I got the kneel at his feet, kiss his ring, and he says, Would you believe he even had a question for me? The barber looked at him and says, What could he have possibly asked you? He says, Where did you get that lousy haircut? <laughs> Don't let them tear you down. I I can't guarantee you you get your wives back, your families back, your health back, your jobs back. But I guarantee you those 12 suggested steps are going to start giving you the tools to work with to dig into some of that stuff you brought through the door. And I think the more you dig, the more you're going to start to uncover something that maybe you can live pretty comfortably with on a daily basis for the rest of your time. So much for attitudes. How about emotions? You know, in five different places in that big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it mentions the one thread, the one trend that seems to run through all our personalities as alcoholics is a little thing called emotional immaturity. How in the hell could a 41-year-old fighter pilot be emotionally immature? You know, I had a hard time buying that at the beginning. I don't today. Because over the, period of the last 25 years, I guess probably it's the character defect that I've had to work on the hardest. I looked up that word immaturity in the dictionary, and you know what it said? Childlike. My emotions had never grown up. It's brought out very vividly to me there in Buena Park where I live every Saturday morning, just like it was this morning. You know, around about 9 o'clock every Saturday morning, there's a knock on a red front door. It's all the kids in the neighborhood gathered out there on my lawn wanting to know if I can come out and play. (laughs) And I do. Every once in a while, my wife comes to the door and they say, oh, it's Red's mother. (laughs) I could never figure out how I got along with kids so well. I have all my life. I realize today that the reason I always did is because their emotions are my emotions. You see, I had never had to talk down to them. I talk directly to him, just like I'm talking to you emotionally immature jokers, and you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Did you ever see one of those little guys get mad? He gets red-faced, fist-clenched, drawn-back, swinging, angry, mad. Now, who does this remind you of? He'll pick up a resentment, and he won't talk to the rest of us for the rest of the day. He's going to punch Anybody identify him? See, it's no wonder we start growing up in rooms like this together. We share our experience, strength, and hope with each other. And we do start to grow up. Hell, some of those kids that come knocking on that door have been doing it for over 20 years. Some of those kids, that used to help put their wheels back on their skateboards. Now I'm helping port and relieve their automobiles. You know, and we still got a good thing going. And when they got in trouble with that crap that's out there on the street tonight, they knew where to bring their buddies and themselves. And I've had a lot of luck in that direction. And I'd have missed it all. I'd have missed it all if it hadn't been for you guys. I still have a hard time getting it right the first time. I don't know whether you guys had that trouble or not. There seems to be a, a huge difference, even to this day, between my will and God. You know, I I, I try, but but I just can't seem to do it his way. Uh, I heard a story over in Vegas the other night kind of illustrates what I'm talking about. This guy must have been an alpha. He'd been out of work all during that slow period we had. He finally got himself a real good job in a supermarket in the produce department. He's keeping all the lettuce and tomatoes and vegetables all laid out and wet down, looking good. All of a sudden, one afternoon, this guy come walking in. He cornered him. He says, young man, he says, I want to buy half a head of your lettuce. The kid looked at him and says, I'm sorry, sir, we don't sell half a head of lettuce. Now, I deal with the public on a daily basis. And I know how irritating they can get when they want to be. And you know, this guy stayed right in the middle of me. He says, look at the price of that stuff. He says, I'm a bachelor. It just go to waste. Sell me a half a head of lettuce. kid. stuck with his guns. He says, no, sir, we don't sell it that way. He wouldn't let up. He says, why don't you go back there and ask your store manager whether he'll sell me a half a head. And by this time, the kid is steaming, and I can understand those kinds of emotions. He goes charging back into that store manager's office. He says, there's some half-assed character out here that wants to buy a half a head of lettuce. He turns around, and the guy walked in right behind him. And he says, and this gentleman here would like to buy the other half.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: See the difference between my will and God. Huh? Those of you that are in that first thirty or sixty days that have been sitting here tonight—if you're anything like I was when I come through those doors. You're you're probably sitting out there looking for the prettiest girl that came in tonight. I did that for my first 30 or 60-year days. In fact, I've been married to one of them now for 24 of those 25 years. So you can tell how I was listening to that sponsor of mine when he said no emotional involvement. But I think probably it's one of the greatest things that ever happened to me, to be married over a long period of time to another alcoholic. We moved two chiefs under one roof with no Indians. And I'll guarantee you, you get a lot of button pushing going on. But I think one of the greatest things that's happened to us over our sobriety is that we've become friends. You know, and it's very, very seldom that you can really become true friends with the guy or the gal that you're married to. And we've got a real good thing going. We've got a lot of babies on both sides, and, and we stay active on the program. I still have a... Hard time with that turn it over button. I don't know whether you guys have any trouble with that or not. I don't have too much trouble turning my will and my life over to the care of God. I have a little trouble leaving it there for any length of time at all. You know, when it starts getting good, guess who wants to take the credit for it? You know, I, I had a perfect example I'd like to close with a few years ago down at the shop. I got up one morning. I had a bunch of situations down there that I really didn't want to go down and handle. I'm still pretty good at procrastination. You know, I hem and hawed around that house that morning, and finally I hit that 91 freeway running late going to Long Beach. Now, even to this day, when old Red hit the freeway running late, strange things begin to happen. People get cut out, horns get blown, fingers get given. You know, I'm building a head of steam, and I haven't even got to work yet. And whenever I start to act that way, that old monster inside of me, that one that used to whip me right over to that corner tavern begins to lash. And I got to run that checklist. And man, I hit that turn it over button and it froze in the down position. I haven't turned anything over. I talked to God just like I'm talking to you guys. And I said, okay, sir, I'll just go down and do the footwork. You handle it. I got down there that morning. None of that stuff that I'd anticipated ever did come in. Everything that did come in was just as smooth as glass. And it was a nice day. It really was. I jumped in that same car that night, headed back out 91 on the way home. Guess who I'm patting on the back for the way I handled that situation. And all of a sudden, it dawned on me what I was doing, and I busted out laughing. And I looked over, and the guys driving on each side of me on the freeway are tuning the radio, trying to find out what the hell I'm listening to But it reminded me of a story like most things do that I used to use back in my combat days about credit where credit's due. I had six crushers in my DFC, and when I would wear them, guys would look at me and say, where in the hell did you ever get those red? And I used to have a stock answer that I got pushed in the pond. But the story goes about like this. It's about a Texas rancher. He had one of the biggest spreads in Texas. Thousands of acres, big old Olympic-sized pool, big old barbecue area, a rambling ranch house. This is a conversation piece. He built himself about 150 yards across the alligator pond. Filled it with the meanest damn alligators he could find the world over. These big old 15-foot snappers. And he didn't feed them too good. He kept mean out there. All these guys got out there one afternoon drinking his flit and telling these war stories. And This Texan finally got a little tired of him. He says, I'll tell you what I'll do. He says, "Any of you guys really want to prove your courage? He says, anybody will go down there and swim across that alligator pond. I'll give you my daughter's hand in marriage, a a million dollars or a ranch like mine. Figured he'd shut him up for good. He no more turned his back and he hears all this commotion. He turned around and here this guy is swimming out across that pond and man, he is moving out. He's leaving a to tail and he made it. Tech and run around. He helped him out. He says, I've never seen such a display of courage. He says, I'll stick with my bargain. He says, I'm asking you want my daughter's hand. Guy shook his head and he says, Oh no, sir. He says, I'm already married. I said, looked at him and says, well then it's got to be the million dollars. The guy shook his head and he says, No, sir. He says, I have an income for life. He looked at him and he says, Well, then it's, it's got to be the ranch like mine. I said, he shook his head and he says, No, sir. He says, My daddy left me one of his will. He looked at him and he says, Well, what do you want? He says, I want the name of that son of a bitch that pushed me in the pond. <laughs> <laughs> It's been a great audience, gang. Just remember, we all got pushed into that pond of alcohol. Probably no human power could ever got us out of there. God can, and He will, if He is sought. May you find Him now. May that power watch over us all, a day at a time, through the eternity of our spiritual existence. And I sure want to thank you guys for letting me share.